first three of the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I'll just read verses 3, 4, and 5. This is God's Word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Thus reads God's holy, infallible, inspired word. I want you to listen uh, to the opening words to the Valley of Vision. The opening words to the Valley of Vision. The Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death. Thy joy in my sorrow thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. In 1975, Arthur Bennett, a long-devoted student to the Puritans, published a collection of Puritan prayers now lovingly known as the Valley of Vision. This collection's fame has far exceeded the fame of the collector and is now for more than several decades beloved by dear Christians throughout the world. Um, And many of these prayers spoke of God's good and gracious dealings uh, with the souls of men. Uh, These prayers resonate uh, with every Christian because they speak of their condition before a holy God, uh, and God's gracious response. Although Arthur Bennett is hardly known in the world of Christianity today, uh, I'm positive that in heaven, Arthur Bennett is greatly known, and he is greatly treasured by his Savior, Jesus. And this falls... Very, I think, very, very neatly, very well, very symmetrically with the Beatitudes, uh, the opening lines 
that blessed are the poor in spirit sounds like to be low is to be high. Um, That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. Uh, That it is greater to give than it is to receive. Uh, The Christian life, Christian life, is a life of paradox. Uh, It is one that is inverse to this present world. Uh, Today, we walk up the, the first three steps up the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope you've already noticed that within these three verses, these first three steps, uh, oftenly lovingly called the Beatitudes, uh, as we go up onto the mountain, uh, we actually go down on the human condition. Uh, that as we ascend the mountain with Jesus, we descend in our own estimation of self. And I think Jesus does this deliberately. And he does this to demonstrate to us that uh, before we see any of the, the benefits, the glories, the majesties, or the privileges of being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, uh, one must first become the lowliest, the scum of the kingdom of the earth. Uh, because this, this love for self, um, when in the Christian sense, is paradoxical in nature. Because in Jesus' mind, uh, to be poor in spirit, to be mourning, to be meek, uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to be merciful, the, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker, uh, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, these qualities are the ones that are elevated. These are the ones that are held high, which are esteemed by the king himself. Um, That to be poor in spirit is to be actually blessed. Uh, To have a healthy and humble understanding of one's condition before a holy God is the most blessed, fortunate, best place you can be. And that is the message of the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' point and purpose when he opens with the character of the Christian rather than his conduct. Uh, Character must always come before conduct. Uh, Who you are inside, in the private of your own heart, is far more important to God than whatever kind of Christian you are on the outside. Uh, Who you say you are to be in public. By way of introduction into this opening section, these first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the coming weeks, I want you to notice a progression. Uh, There's a progression, a logical progression of going lower and lower of self in the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus is not willy-nilly throwing together these different character traits, these different blessings and beatitudes together, but he's logically piecing them uh, one by one, one after another. One beatitude inevitably leads to the next one. Uh, Furthermore, just by way of introduction, this term beatitude, uh, it's a made-up word, it's a combined word, it's a compound word. Uh, It combines the term blessed and attitude which I think is very fitting because these are the attitudes of the person that Christ is addressing, that Christ is blessing, that Christ is noting and esteeming and counting of great value for himself. 
So I want you to uh, grab a hold of these blessed attitudes, these beatitudes. And for the first three, you must grab a hold of lowliness of self. You must grab a hold of lowliness of self. You must understand that you are low and humble and of contrite spirit before a glorious, holy, righteous God. You must grab a hold of lowliness of self. To be Christian is to be lowly in self. So let's just look at the first one, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This must be the starting point for every believer. Poverty of spirit is the condition of a person that recognizes that it is not your own talents, your personality, your smarts, your athleticism, your good deeds that earn your way to heaven. It will never allow you to stand righteously before God, but rather the complete, utter dependence upon God, dependence on His grace, His mercy, is what allows you to receive or enter in the kingdom of heaven. Everything you are, everything you are able to do is because of God's grace. This must be most true First and foremost, in the gospel, nowhere in scripture will you find uh, the message that says, by my own strength, I have earned God's favor, that I've made, my, my, made myself right with God, I have saved myself. The message of the gospel, the starting point for the Christian, uh, Jesus' opening line, blessed are the poor in spirit, all these perfectly line up, line themselves up right next to each other and say, essentially, one clear message that you cannot save yourself. You must humble yourself, prostrate yourself before God. Be poor in spirit. Uh, The entire reason why uh, when you hear the gospel and you embrace its message because you understand God has revealed it to you that you are not self-sufficient, okay? You cannot save yourself. Your sins are too much for you to bear and God's judgment is too much for you to handle. You cannot atone. You cannot pay for your own sins. You cannot work to re-earn or regain God's favor as if you were to work off a debt. You cannot restore the relationship between your sinful self that has rebelled against God and God's holiness and his righteousness. And so when you see your sin in light of God's holiness, in light of his righteousness, in light of his goodness, in light of his justice, you respond the same way Isaiah the prophet responded. In Isaiah chapter six, verse five, he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Listen, the gospel only becomes rich, only becomes precious, only becomes valuable profitable to you when you understand your, your own moral bankruptcy. Um, the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Uh, to be poor in spirit is to be poor in self-estimation. 
Jesus is not saying here that you must be poor physically. He's not saying that you must live some kind of monastic kind of lifestyle that you're never to self-indulge in yourself. Uh, but, and he's not saying that you must um, eat plain oatmeal every morning, give every penny you earn to the poor and have little to no possessions and never take a vacation. I'm sorry if you don't like plain oatmeal. I, I don't like plain oatmeal. Um, that is not poverty of spirit. People who think that their, their spiritualness, their, their godliness, their, their piety is expressed by some form of physical poverty, they are no better than the hypocrites when we'll look at in chapter 6. Um, Jesus will speak about them and he'll say that they want others. They do it for the approval of man. They want others to see their godliness. That is not what he's talking about here when, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the spirit is the inward, the invisible driving force of a person. Uh, The Bible makes clear that man is both material and immaterial, physical and spiritual, all right? Um, That you possess both a body and a soul. You have a mind and you have a spirit. So when Jesus refers to being poor in spirit, it means that your spirit, your inward being, who you truly are, Inside, before God, is low. You are humble. You understand that everything you do, every breath you take, every step you make, you you must make and you must breathe and you walk by the grace of God. And that is true for the most minutiae of your life, the most boring parts of your life, And and that is true for your eternal destiny. Uh, To be poor in spirit is to be utterly dependent upon God and God alone. Remember, Jesus presents the Christian life as a a paradox, uh, as antithetical to the world. Uh, So this opening line this first step for the Christian to be poor in spirit, Jesus views that, he calls that blessed, blessed. The world, as some of you may know, the world loves this term, hashtag blessed. But what does that, what does that truly mean? For Jesus, the term is not an unfamiliar one to him. He's not making it up on the spot right here because Jesus perfectly understood the Old Testament. Because he is the one who inspired the Old Testament writers to write the words of the Old Testament. And so he would perfectly know, he would be perfectly be able to hearken back to the same Old Testament use of the term blessed. To be blessed is to be happy, it's to be fortunate, to be content, to be satisfied, to be lacking in nothing. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter one. It's a familiar psalm, I hope, to some of you. Psalm chapter one. And just look at this first verse. Psalm chapter one, verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, verse two, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day 
and night. Um, Jesus is drawing a similar connection here. That to be happy, to be truly blessed, is to be devoid of any proud self-estimation, but to be utterly dependent upon God. Um, When you're completely dependent upon God, uh, when your trust is placed fully in Him, uh, when your faith is in the hands of an almighty God, a near and dear Savior, you are blessed, you are happy, you are at peace. Um, Though the storms of life may come upon you, uh, you are unshaken because you have taken shelter under the rock of ages. You don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You don't stand in the path of sinners, nor do you sit in the seat of scoffers. You don't join these kinds of people because where? Your delight, your treasure is in God's law and God's, God's law which reveals God's character. That's where your, your content, contentment is. And you understand you don't, you don't match that law. You fall short of it. And you understand God, I can't perfectly obey this law. I I can only ask for mercy. Mercy from God. Uh, Second component of being blessed is, back at Psalm chapter one, is that every blessing, every blessing you find in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, it comes with some sort of promise. Uh, For example, you see the promise uh, that is built into the opening lines of Psalm chapter one. What does it say? It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. Uh, The Beatitudes carry a similar kind of construction here. Uh, You see the attitude, uh, the character trait that begets blessing. And then, see, for us is blessed are the poor in spirit. And then there is that for, uh, the Greek term denotes a logical result Uh, That is the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit for, logical result, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This first beatitude, this first step is amazing. Why? Because if what Jesus is saying is true, that poverty of spirit, the complete absence of any self-confidence, but utter dependence upon God, that yields the entire Kingdom of heaven. In other words, when you are poor in spirit, you are already in possession of the entire kingdom of heaven. How how is that even possible? How's that even possible, you ask? Like I said before, the these beatitudes are placed together in a series of spiritual progression. And, and where, where we start here is the, the lowest, the most constant point, the common denominator of the Christian condition. Uh, this is the entryway. This first beatitude is, uh, they, it is the gates into the kingdom of heaven. And so when you recognize that you cannot save yourself, you cannot do anything outside of the grace of God, when you recognize that you are entirely dependent upon God and God alone, that is the first and most prominent mark of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that the citizens are dependent upon the king. And that's when everything falls into place. That's when you're welcomed into the kingdom. 
That's when you have an invitation to the king's feast. That's when you have a seat at his table. That's when you're called a child of the king. And all of this is predicated upon that first complete denial of self. Jesus says later uh, to his disciples that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they count the cost, they deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. Through the cross, the death of oneself, namely the death of one's pride, your pride, your self-reliance, is to wear the crown. Jesus did it first by way of example for us. When he literally carried his cross and he wore a, a crown of thorns and he died a death of self-denial, one of complete obedience to his father so that those who would call themselves disciples, those who would call themselves uh, followers of Christ would follow in the same steps of self-denial that Christ did and place their entire trust in him. Uh, There are plenty of examples in the Bible of poverty of spirit. Moses, for example, Moses counted himself not worthy to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, He wanted to find someone else. He said, send send someone else, Lord. I I can't speak. Use my brother. Uh, Gideon, the judge, uh, counted himself unworthy to lead the armies of Israel against the Midianites for the Lord. Find someone else, Lord. David, King David, uh, saw himself as the runt of the litter, the least of his brothers, and he was not worthy of the throne of Israel. But God called and used these men nonetheless. You have plenty of examples in the Bible. But then, you have Jesus. The Apostle Paul says this of his master in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And turn there, please. I want you to read these, these words and I want you to treasure them because they're so important. They're so precious because it shows the, the emptiness, the emptying of Christ, the obedience and the humiliation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5 through 11. Have, you, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The glory of God, the Father. You have Jesus who as he hung on the cross could have called an entire array of holy angels to rescue him, to bring him down, to, to in one fell suit could have destroyed the entire Roman Empire and established his physical kingdom right then and there. You have this Jesus, 
That rather than doing that, he bore the cross, he endured the shame, Scripture said. He brought himself low under the mercy of God his Father to bear the penalty and punishment of sin to those whom he loves. Those disciples, those Christians who would do in the same way, their own way that God has designed them, would bear their own cross, would deny themselves, would die to themselves. And you have Jesus. After he died, what awaited after his death? Resurrection. Ascension to the right hand of the Father. We're now and in into eternity future. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? Because if it doesn't, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Our second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus continues with this next step. Blessed are those who mourn. And like before, we have to clarify what Jesus means when he says mourning. He's not saying that those who are constantly crying, those who are constantly uh, emotional and in tears, uh, they will be the ones who will be specifically comforted. He's not saying that. He's not saying that these mourners will will once again feel good. Um, Remember, we need to build upon what Jesus has said before. Those who are poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. So what does being poor in spirit have to do with mourning, those who mourn? Well, when you understand your condition before a holy God, you should mourn. You should mourn. You should mourn over your sin. You should mourn over the the offense that you have brought upon God that your sin has offended a holy God. You understand that your sin has offended this holy God and there's no recourse for sin except judgment and death. You understand that you are completely at the hands of a just, righteous, and holy God and you are a sinner. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only right and just response from God is for him to punish your sin. However, those who are poor in spirit are also beggars for mercy. You understand that that is true. Your life is in God's hands and that outside of God, you would have no hope. You rightly understand where your sin has placed you in the judgment seat. And your only response and your only choice is to cry out for mercy and plead for forgiveness. These are the mourners that Jesus speaks of here. True believers who understand the gravity, the weight of their sin, and they mourn over it. When was the last time you've mourned over your sin? that you've 
cried out to God like the tax collector did when he beat his breast and he's not even able to glance up at heaven, but he cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When is the last time you've done that? Because this kind of mourning, mourning over one's sin, only comes from the one who's poor in spirit. When your pride, when his pride and her pride is stripped away, that you understand that it is only God's mercy that you should be crying out for and nothing else. Isaiah chapter 66, verse two says this, all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Meaning God has distinct favor or in more familiar terms, he shows grace. He extends mercy to the one who mourns over his or her sin. When was the last time you've mourned over your sin? When was the last time you went before your heavenly father and you said what the prodigal son said, that you are not worthy to be counted as a son? When was the last time you've confessed and repented of your sin just to be forgiven and embraced once more by your heavenly father, knowing you are truly forgiven. Uh, The acceptance, the forgiveness, the love of Christ is the comfort Jesus speaks of here. And here's the beauty of this promise. Uh, The term is in future tense. Meaning every time you mourn over your sin, you will find comfort in Christ. And that's a promise. Every time you cry out to God to strengthen your flailing faith, you will find comfort in Christ. Every time that you are at the end of your rope, you will find comfort in Christ. Every time you are sick and tired of your sin and you're sick and tired of returning to the same old mud pies of your sin, you will find Christ Comfort in Christ, near and ready to wash you anew and comfort you again. And that's a very present reality. But the beauty is, is that not only is it present, but there is future, even a greater future promise to come. Because when you turn to the end of your Bible, Revelation 21, it will say that when Jesus comes and he returns and he establishes his kingdom here on earth, that there will be no more crying, that there will be no more mourning, there will be no more tears, for he will wipe away every single tear. There is future and permanent comfort coming for those who mourn over their sin now. And so he says that Happy, blessed is the one who mourns over his sin because he will, he shall find comfort in Christ now and forever. Christ is a near and dear and close savior. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. He does not just save you and leave you to figure things out for yourself. Uh, He knows, because he knows us. He knows our condition. He knows that we'll stumble again and again and again. 
And again, and I, I can keep on going. But Christ, he is ready and close by and willing to pick us up again and show us himself and show us his scars and remind him that all sin has been paid for, that it is finished, he announced on the cross. And he'll show us with his scars that following him is worth it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And our last beatitude for the night. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is our last step. We have one, two, three, four, five, six more to go for today. And Again, by the logic of the progression we have been going so far, the poor in spirit mourn over their sins. Uh, What would you think is the next logical step forward? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Meekness is a character quality you will never hear of in this day and age. Never. You will hardly find anyone who would esteem themselves to be a meek person. You will hardly find anyone who will esteem someone else as a meek person. And if you do find someone who esteems himself or herself as a meek person, they're probably lying to you. Uh, Meekness is more than humility, but not less than it. Uh, To be meek, you must be humble. Uh, But to be humble doesn't necessarily always mean you are meek. So what's the difference? So humility is that umbrella trait. Uh, We've already seen this picture of humility in those who are poor in spirit. They understand that they are the least important when it comes to the kingdom. Uh, But God has shown divine attention to those who are humble. Uh, We read Isaiah 66 verse 2 where God looks upon those who are humble and contrite and trembles at his word. Uh, We've read uh, Philippians 2 that a part of humility, if you, you... scroll a couple verses back, is to count others more significant than yourselves. But Jesus is using a more specific, more exact term that means more than humility. Meekness exemplifies humility in how one views themselves. You understand your position. You are confident in it. Because you know The meek person knows that there's no need to show it off. There's no need to boast about it. To be a a meek Christian is to confidently know who you are in Christ. To be a meek Christian is to confidently know who you are in Christ. A meek Christian is a humble Christian, but also a confident one. Um, This confidence does not come from self. We already proved that in the first beatitude. Um, But to be meek is to be totally and completely confident in God as opposed to confident in self. You completely surrendered yourself by faith to the power and providence of God in your life. Uh, You trust that as you seek first God's righteousness, 
Now, there is no need. We'll see this later in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no need to be anxious about tomorrow. It's about what we'll eat and what we'll drink and what we'll wear. Because anything and everything God will ultimately provide. He will provide for all of your needs, both physical and spiritual. And so a meek Christian is a humble Christian, but, a confident, but also a confident Furthermore, a meek Christian is a humble Christian, but a self-controlled one. The self-control, again, does not come from self. There is no gritting your teeth and bearing through it and following Christ by your own strength. Um, But self-control comes from the Holy Spirit because it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That the Holy Spirit moves and motivates your life. That you know when to laugh when to cry, when to rejoice, because there is a time and a place for everything. And you are growing in discernment and how to navigate and best honor Christ in every situation, just as the preacher describes in Ecclesiastes chapter three. A meek Christian is a humble Christian, but a self-controlled one. And the last, last aspect, this last point I wanna bring up about meekness is a meek Christian is a humble Christian Sorry, a meek Christian is a powerful Christian, but a humble one, looping this back. You know that through the gospel, you are born again. And in your new life, you have a liberty to see fit how you live your life for Christ. You make choices and you make decisions based upon your convictions and hopefully your understanding of scripture. But at the same time, you are humble You do not force these convictions upon others who might see things differently from you. You know that unity in the body is far more valuable than liberty of self. Therefore, you gladly give up your liberties. You gladly give up your rights for the benefit of others. Meek Christians are powerful Christians because they are willing to restrain and control that power, not for themselves, but for the benefit of others and the glory of Jesus Christ. The meek Christian is a powerful Christian, but a humble one. So the meek Christian understands who he or she is in the light of Christ. And that before God, you are a sinner, but you're also redeemed by grace through faith. You are no more than that, and you're no more less than that. Meekness is the next logical response after poverty of spirit and mourning over sin because it expands upon the Christian's view of self. And that's the theme of these first three Beatitudes. We're just looking at how you view yourself right now. Um, And what we'll see as we keep going is that one's character does outflow to other people. Anyways, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The promise here that follows is enigmatic. It's interesting. It is strange. Inheriting the earth. Um, I think the meekness part makes sense, but how does it mean that the meek inherit the earth? Like I said before, the meek understand who they are in relation to God and in relation to the world. They're confident in their position in Christ. Uh, Therefore, they are able to navigate this world. 
Um, they are able to, uh, sorry, they're unable to understand and appreciate the things of the world because they understand that the world is not their home. They are able to live with the fleeting now, the fleeting things of today, and anticipate the coming future realities of forever. Uh, Meek Christians are the happiest Christians because they understand that their future is secure in Christ so that they can live in the present with confidence. That you can smile at the things to come because you understand who you are today. In some sense, the meek inherit the earth because they're not tied down by it. Um, The earth does not inherit them. Uh, The cares of the world do not dominate their thoughts because they know that they have something better, a better kingdom, a better home waiting for them. And so they're able to ascend past the cares of the earth because they're no longer bound by it. And seemingly, and just with, um, you know, the future promises of those that comfort when you mourn for your sin, there is a, a future promise, coming reality of inheriting the earth. Uh, because Christ will come. He's coming again. And he will come and establish his rule and reign on the earth. And it says the meek will be a part of that reign. The kingdom of heaven is here and now in the hearts of those to whom they have given up their hearts for Christ. Those who are poor in spirit. But the kingdom of heaven is a coming reality that will take fuller and uh, a fuller shape and fruition when Christ returns once more. Are you confident in who you are in Christ? Are you confident in who you are in Christ? Do you know Christ in that confident way, to ask it in a, at another angle. And so, we've made our first baby steps up onto the Sermon on the Mount. And like I said, what you'll notice as we keep progressing is that Jesus becomes uh, more and more others-focused. That these first three will speak to your inward condition But what you'll see is there's a progression outward. Because what is true inward must become true outward. That you can't be one thing and demonstrate the other. You can't say you're one thing and live your life the other. And so what are you before God? Do you see that the Christian life is one of paradox? That to be in the valley, to be low, is to see Christ most clearly. Is that true for your life? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over your sin? Are you meek and embrace the position you have in Christ? What if these things are not true for you? What's holding you back? What kind of pride, what kind of physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual pride are you harboring that is holding you back from Christ? Um, Do you think that you'll discover some other way to escape impending judgment? Uh, If so, I would urge you to humble yourself before Christ. 
earnestly seek after him. And scripture promises that he makes himself very near and very much available to you. Arthur Bennett understood these Beatitudes very well. And when he passed away, you can find these words on his gravestone. Let me find thy joy in my valley. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and you will find joy in every valley, in every circumstance. uh, Because it is there and only there. In poverty of spirit, in the mourning of your sin, in the meekness of your heart, will Christ truly become precious. Let us pray. Father God, every time we pray, we exercise um, that faith, that understanding that we pray to an all-powerful God. We pray in deep humility, knowing that the things we pray for, only you can answer and you can only you can deliver. And so may that be true in our lives, in our prayers, in our conduct, in our hearts, that we are humble people before you, that we understand our position as sinners before you, and we are merely beggars for mercy. And so in that perspective, that right and true and biblical perspective of poverty of spirit, a mourning over sin, uh, to be meek. May we count Christ more precious than he's ever been to us. Help us to do that, Lord. Pray these things in his precious and holy name. Amen.